Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 47. After Hours with Michael Jehofsky. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, and it's therefore an after-hours episode. As I mentioned on earlier shows, I'm reading through the Silmarillion this year, and uh, I'm actually currently on chapter 21. And today, I have someone to join me on this journey through Middle-earth as I talk to Professor Michael Jehosky about his book. Professor Michael T. Jehosky teaches humanities at St. Petersburg College in Florida. As I was researching him, I saw that on RateMyProfessors.com, he had a score of 4.2 out of 5, which seems pretty good to me. He has two bachelor degrees, one in humanities and one in history from the University of Central Florida, and a master's degree in humanities from the University of South Florida. Over the course of his academic career, he has specialized in Greek, Roman, and biblical history, philosophy, theology, and the arts. In graduate school, in addition to these areas of study, he also focused on early Italian Renaissance. A few months ago, he was on the Unbelievable podcast with another former guest of the show, Dr. Holly Ordway. He is the host of Mythic Mission, a podcast and YouTube channel, and the author of the newly released book, which we'll be discussing today, The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel of Middle-Earth which is endorsed by another former guest of the show, Dr. Louis Marcos. Professor Michael Jehosky, welcome to Pints with Jack. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Not at all, not at all. So here on Pints with Jack, each episode we share a quote, a drink, and a toast. And for Mm. Christmas this year, my brother-in-law, Sam, he gave me a copy of Tolkien's Collected Letters. And so for the quote of the week, I thought I'd share Tolkien's own description of the Lord of the Rings, found in letter 142. The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. And today for the drink of the week, I was going to go for something more exciting, but it's a cold, wet day here in San Diego, so I'm tucked up in my hobbit hole with some hot peppermint tea. Uh, Are you drinking anything? I am. I'm enjoying a uh, Dogfish Head 60-minute IPA. That's the only kind of beer I drink these days. I'm enjoying it very much. I, I quite like IPAs. I, I just find them too hoppy. Mm. I, I'm, I'm they're extremely. Hoppy. I'm just, I'm just not enough of a man. Apparently, that's my conclusion. That's, at least that's what my friends <laughs> tell me. Not true, sir. <laughs> <laughs> now we don't actually have any new Patreon supporters today. So for the Patreon toast, I thought we would just toast Tolkien. So, if you raise your glass, to the professor. So, to kick things off, I gave a brief biography earlier. But would you mind just filling in a few of the details, telling us a little bit more about yourself, about your interest in myth and Middle-earth? Sure. Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when my interest in myth began, but I can tell you um, with uh, absolute certainty that my interest in Tolkien's uh, works began in 2001 when I was about 16 years old. This is the year that I rediscovered Christianity and discovered uh, Tolkien's books for the first time. My brother actually turned me on to a love of the books before the movies came out. We didn't finish them before they came out, so we finished them after. And then I went and devoured the rest of the books. I think I did The Hobbit, and I read bits and pieces of The Silmarillion over probably the next decade, as it takes that long sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I remember loving myth, just the, the incredible stories in college. And the reason I decided to major in humanities, you know, is because I had a great professor at University of Central Florida who um, really was just very inspirational to me. I still keep in touch with him. He's retired now. Uh, and, he, and he's like, oh, you're a professor now. He's like, this is incredible. It's, it must be eye-opening for him. Um, but, uh, you know, I loved his classes, and I just knew that I wanted to share my love of uh, knowledge and wisdom with other people. And so, I'm, you know, today I'm a humanities professor, as you already said, uh, here in Florida at St. Petersburg College. You know, we're a great school. We're known uh, nationally and even internationally. We've got great online program. So I'm happy to be involved uh, here, and I mean, there's so much to say. I'm, I'm happily married. I've got two kids. Uh, they're turning seven and four this March. Um, they're both March babies, so that's exciting. And uh, you know, author of this new book, uh, lots of lots of things that I'm interested in. But um, you know, yeah, that's a good start. Well, the real test of your 
Tolkien nerddom is how fluent are you in Quenya and Sindarin? I'm ashamed to say I never studied Elvish. I am, however, adept at filling up the corners like any good hobbit, so that I have in spades. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm still waiting for the Duolingo course. Yeah, yeah, I hear that's a great program for um, for other languages as well. So they need they need to make that happen. Dothraki, Klingon, Sindarin. That's my that's my wish list. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, this is a good good bucket list too. I don't have to jump on board with you now. We'll talk about your book shortly, but before we get to that, I just want to make sure that we talk a little bit about your podcast, Mythic Mission. Thank you. What are you doing in that podcast, and who are some of the guests you've had on? Because there were, I was looking through the list, there are quite a few people that I want on this show as well. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. And I think um, we've got one, Brian Williams, who uh, who was just on the show a few episodes ago, who's written a book uh, called C.S. Lewis Pre-Evangelism for a Post-Christian World. Uh, why Narnia is more real than we think. So that's probably uh, the most uh, you know relevant guest I've had on for your show. I think he's gotten in touch with you. I hope he comes on soon. It's an excellent book. He was an excellent guest. We had a lot of fun talking. It's uh, one of my most popular episodes. Um, another one that I'm very fond of, and I'll tell you a little bit more about the show in a second, is um, Dr. Paul Gould, who um, a previous uh, individual I mentioned, Brian Williams, is also a PhD. Dr. Gould uh, teaches on the other side of the coast, here in Florida uh, at Palm Beach Atlantic University. And he's got a book that I highly recommend called Cultural Apologetics. I think I've spoken to you about Paul Gould before. I've got a colleague from SPC who's got a book coming out on Greek tragedy. So I've even got somebody close to home. Uh, we talked about myth and uh, the myths in uh, the tragedians, works of the tragedians from classical Athens. So Dr. Matthew Sims came on the show. I've got a couple others. Um, Devin Brown is a Tolkien scholar. Uh, and of course, Dr. Lewis Marcos, how could I forget to mention him? He um, not only endorsed my book, but reviewed it and uh, came on. He was our very first episode. He talked about his new book, The Myth Made Fact, which is excellent. So uh, the, the podcast, um, as it kind of sounds, Mythic Mission is uh, really kind of bringing you my love of an imaginative apologetic, uh, as well as one that stimulates the intellect. So uh, you know, the little blurb for the show is that I'm, I'm trying to, to have an apologetic that appeals to you know, the whole person. Uh, as a friend once told me, we need churches that preach to the whole person. And so, uh, of course, it's much more than just the imagination and the intellect, but that's really what my uh, show focuses on, essentially where faith and the arts intersect, especially around this concept of myth as mythos is the Greek term as a narrated worldview. And so I'm really interested in exploring, uh, exploring that. That's what we're doing on the show. Cool. Well, let's talk about your book then. The Good News of the Return of the King, the Gospel in Middle-earth. So how did this come about? Yeah, so the, the book uh, began as a series of journal reflections, actually. So uh, I think I started jotting things down right when I had become initially an adjunct in 2010, 2011, which was an important year. I'll mention why later. Um, by 2012, especially on my Christmas breaks, you know, during Advent, I found myself just kind of wandering into Narnia and Middle-earth and taking notes on my... Uh, at the time, I was actually just doodling on Microsoft Word and brain dumping a bunch of ideas. And eventually, so you might call them Tolkien, uh, Tolkien penses almost, <laughs> uh, you know, Blaise Pascal's penses are another favorite. So anyway, um, I, I started just journaling. And then eventually, a couple of years later, after I guess you could call that research, I was kind of exploring some of the intuitions I had about the Bible and the gospel specifically and the works of Tolkien. And by 2015, I went to my first academic conference, no less, in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, and I presented a paper. I think it was called Tolkien's Parable, The House of David in Middle-earth. I've got to double check that. I had to scrub that title with the publisher ultimately because of the mention of, uh, of his name. But I think that was the title of the paper. Paper turned into a proposal, but I pitched this um, abstract of mine to the uh, publisher's booth at the conference at the hotel, and they gave me the cold shoulder. I was told this kind of happens frequently, <laughs> so I was, you know, eh, 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 very nervous. I was like, hey, here, here, here's my abstract, you know, take a look, and uh, maybe that had something to do with it. But uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, they wrote in and said, we'd like a full proposal. This was my first publisher, I think uh, McFarland. And uh, was with them for some number of years, actually four years until 2019. And then had to, after the peer review, I think they decided it was going in too Christian a direction. Uh, initially, they knew it was a Christian and specifically Catholic kind of, you know, subject. But 
I think it became too uh, persuasive, more like an apologetic that they didn't like that. Mm -hmm. So eventually I ended up with Whipfenstock uh, through the help of uh, some friends and some some new friends and uh, lots of networking. Finally got a publisher for my book and then finally published again in uh, you know, September of 2020. So quite a road. <laughs> quite a road. Yeah. And I got to say, I really did enjoy your book. I Thank felt you. that it really deserved to be read slowly. Mm. You described it in the introduction as you wanted it to be red beef and strong beer. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's definitely true. And another thing that I found really helpful were the videos that were on your YouTube channel mm -hmm. as you did a group study going through the book. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm, you know, that was kind of the first foray of, of videos that we did. And uh, that was prior to the podcast's inception, which really kicked off in the 2021 year. I'm glad you found them helpful. And uh, I'm, I'm honored that you read and enjoyed the book. So, yeah. Well, I'll make sure I put up a page on our blog with all of the all the videos. So when someone's reading it, they just know one place that they get to go to. A study guide. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I do really like it when books are launched with that kind of material. There, there mm. was there was one put out ooh, a couple of years ago on the the theology of the Jerusalem Temple, and they launched a podcast and a video series. Now all this kind of other stuff alongside it. So you basically had a companion through the book. Uh, I mean, one of That's the things incredible. We, what we do here with Pints with Jack is we will just discuss the book and move through it, so that as you're reading mm. it, you get to do it in community, even if you're at a research station in Antarctica. It's a great idea. And, you know, it, it is kind of a homegrown version. Uh, you know, it's not professionally edited, but, uh, you know, uh, that's because I'm, I'm kind of my own publicist. And, you know, my sister is kind of helping a little bit on the side and she's gotten quite busy, but she's got some plans for later in the year to kind of get the book even more out there. So as I said, this was a first attempt to kind of uh, get something going that people could hang on to in case they needed a little extra help. So it sounds like a, a good direction for, for authors to go in uh, so that people can get the most out of their book. Absolutely. Mm. So in a nutshell, what would you say your book is about? Yeah, I, I've struggled with this because there's so many important points that I would want to communicate to the reader uh, and to my audience in general, You know, whether you're getting introduced to my book through one of my videos or a podcast or if you actually pick up my book and just dive right in. I would say the back cover does a great job, as all back, back covers do. But here's one point from early in the book I can read from, I think, page 23 of the Kindle edition. And I, I quote myself here saying this, If everything in reality in some way points to Jesus Christ, the incarnation, then the best possible way to communicate that would be through a type of communication that is in form what it wants to say in content. That is, i.e., kind of an incarnational form of communication. And so um, that's kind of it, the book in a nutshell is that how Tolkien communicated the Christian worldview was very important to him on his own scale of significance. You know, as many scholars have pointed out, this was number one on his list. And yet I found so many Tolkien scholars that said very, you know, kind of ambiguously, well, it is and it isn't a Christian book. And I'm like, well, it either is or it isn't. Maybe we just don't understand how it is. Mm. And so I've tried to unpack that in my book, how... Tolkien communicated the Christian worldview. And I found a, a remarkable essay. Here's one last thing I tack on to this in a nutshell is um, Tolkien's Art of the Parable. It's an essay by Father Robert Murray. He was a Jesuit uh, friend of Tolkien's who was a correspondent in many of the letters that you uh, mentioned your brother-in-law, I think, got you. You can find that he uh, spoke to him frequently. And he wrote this for the Tolkien, uh, Tolkien centenary in 1992. And I think it was a sermon initially, then it became an essay. And that really kind of unlocked it for me. And so I've really, I said to myself, I need to develop what Murray started and really focus on the how. You know, how did Tolkien get his Christian vision across without violating the reader's ability to figure it out for him or herself? And so that's what the book is about. Well, let's, uh, let's move through the book. Uh, I think we're going to spend more time on the introduction and chapter one, because as I was working through it, those were the those were the key bits that I kept coming back to. Mm. Oh, and once I felt like I'd really started to grasp that material, everything else started to fall into place. Yes. So in the preface, you talk about your road into Jerusalem. <laughs> what was this? Yeah, so I know you'll know this, uh, David, that uh, you know this was C.S. Lewis's uh, essay, uh, Christianity and Culture. 
Uh, you may be familiar with it, you may not, but it's from the uh, compilation Christian Reflections. And he has a, a, a quote in there I'd, I'd like to share. He says, you know, if for some, culture may be a uh, road into Jerusalem. For others, it may not be. Initiation, uh, imitation may pass into initiation. And, and so I, I read this uh, much later uh, in my research journey for the book. I think it was sometime after my trip to Jerusalem, believe it or not, in uh, probably the years 2016 to 2019. And as I look back on, at that point, so many years, uh, well over 15 years of my spiritual journey, I kind of realized that Tolkien uh, helped me hear the gospel for the first time, or in a way that I was really getting the true gospel. Because my rediscovery of Christianity, the same year I discovered Tolkien, I was buying into kind of a prosperity gospel, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, which I didn't know at the time was bad Christianity. And so, <laughs> you know, and it really... It really is. Uh, so, you know, as I as I was just looking back and after reading this essay, I, I kind of realized this was an, a very apropos image for my uh, well, my road into Jerusalem. Is that the Lord of the Rings was it? My my road into Jerusalem, my journey to faith. It helped me understand Christianity better. I talk about this in the book frequently, and it kind of just tied it all together for me. And so that's why I entitled it that. And of course, you know, my, my spiritual journey is given there in full. It's there's a lot of moving parts, but um, I don't know if you want me to get into that at all. No, let's 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 keep pressing on because there's a lot of stuff yeah. I want to talk to you about. I know, but yes. I I will say this is the thing I really enjoyed about your book because although it's a book about Tolkien, Ooh. Lewis appears an awful lot, <laughs> and he does. He helps unpack a lot of the stuff that that you talk about, and just that idea of this road into Jerusalem or road out of Jerusalem, mm. and. Tolkien communicating his Christianity through his work. As soon as I put this in terms of getting past watchful dragons, mm. everything started to make sense to me. And Indeed. I would just say that whereas some people criticize Narnia, and then we are going to talk about Narnia uh, for, for its so-called crudity, I will definitely say that Tolkien, in his way of getting past watchful dragons, is infinitely subtler in such oh, yes. a way that I will still bump into people that have no idea as to the background of Tolkien, that they had no idea that this was someone that took his faith really seriously and thought this work was, as I said in the quote of the week, uh, mm. an essentially spiritual and religious work. Yes, I quite agree. I mean, he, he does have a much more suggestive and elusive way of communicating the gospel. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to delve more into the Narnia series about this as well but you know there were there are moments i should say in the narnia books where lewis does this uh, you know approximating as well as i think tolkien did it but i do say that you know tolkien does it a lot better more consistently there are moments where you know the cracks in the story really appear and become quite wide in the narnia books and so you can kind of see right through to what they're you know gesturing toward um but yes I, you know i think it's uh, it's a great it's a great image uh, for, for many of us, you know, there are things in culture that get us thinking about you know, bigger ideas and something transcendent. We start wondering maybe there's something more to life. And, you know, it wasn't quite that way for me because I was already kind of interested in Christianity, but it, it opened up the Christian faith more. And so it can do that as well. And But Lewis does say that for some, it is a good beginning. Uh, you know, for others, uh, you know, we, we have a road out of Jerusalem. Culture can draw us away from the faith. So he does say there's another side to that sword. Mm. And one thing I will say in defense of Lewis is mm. I would expect Tolkien's to be a little bit more smooth, a little bit more refined, because the guy took decades to write the book. <laughs> My boy Jack was knocking out the Chronicles of Narnia about one a year. Yeah. But anyway, I'm getting defensive. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, it's it's good. It's true, though. It's true. Yeah. Well, I'd love to have that conversation maybe again in the future. Yeah. <laughs> You have quite a substantial introduction to your book. It's a little shy of 50 pages. Yes. One of the key things that the reader really needs to grasp before they delve into the body of the book. Mm. You know, I think one of the, the big pushbacks I had when publishing the book is that I wanted to make this a whole another chapter. So I would encourage the reader to, to take heart. The introduction is very important. It is long. It, it treated as a chapter in and of itself. There are several concepts and terms that uh, we need to kind of unpack in the introduction before making the case that I want to make in chapter one, especially about the uh, literary form that the Lord of the Rings is that can help us understand how Christianity is being communicated. So 
uh, of those concepts, um, you know, there, uh, of course, is the concept of myth, which I'll speak to in a moment. I, uh, I talk about types, antitypes, archetypes, uh, typology in general as a way of interpreting scripture very early on in the introduction. Uh, I mention allegory, although that's mainly saved for chapter one. And I mention parable and metaphor and these other literary concepts uh, that are also more chapter one, which we'll get to. Uh, and fairy story, of course, gets a mention. So I kind of set the stage as any good introduction does. You know, these are ideas that pop up again. But other ideas that I'd like to mention is that I like to address in the introduction for readers to know about and listeners here is that I try to also talk about the relationship between Christianity and other religions. Or if you understand religions as a myth, what we're saying is, you know, these other religions have narrated worldviews. They have certain uh, ways of looking at the world. And this was of great importance to both Tolkien and Lewis, and it was Tolkien that helped impress this uh, upon Lewis in 1931, where I think he went on to write several uh, an essay that had this theme that really stimulated him to return to Christianity, and that was all thanks to Tolkien's way of looking at myth. And so I do spend a lot of time unpacking that. So you know, myth uh, for Tolkien and Lewis was something like a grand narrative or a narrated worldview, a true statement, a, a, a true story is the ancient understanding of it. And that's really how they understood it. Uh, but this gets very complicated in, uh, philosophically from, from this point you know, of, of simplicity, this departure point. There's, there's more detail and nuance to it. Uh, but this uh, at least did tell the theistic Lewis, who you know, I think he'd become a theist in 1930 at this point, uh, you know, that myths are not lies like he thought. And it opened up a lot of new doors for him. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of people who read my book who are in that same boat as Lewis was. So I talk about that. I talk about the relationship between Christianity and other religions, because I know that I've had a lot of pushback from folks who say, oh, well, you say the Lord of the Rings is a Christian book. Well, what does that mean for the Scandinavian elements and the Anglo-Saxon elements and the Greco-Roman elements and the other, the Jewish elements, not even, well, okay, that's Judeo-Christian, but okay, I see your point. You know, I address that because I think it is important that the reader has that. So we, we delve into some of that as well. And I think that pretty much covers what I would say are the most important parts. And then last but not least, I would say one last thing might be important, although it comes up frequently throughout the rest of the book, is the perspective we take in the book will surprise readers. I'm starting with The Lord of the Rings and looking back to the prequel books. So we start with The Lord of the Rings, actually start with The New Shadow, which many people don't know this, but Tolkien has a uh, abandoned sequel to The Lord of the Rings. Then we go to The Lord of the Rings. We then go to The Hobbit and then back to The Silmarillion and the debate of Finrod and Andreth and other short stories and unfinished tales. Uh, and we look retrospectively through the mythology of Tolkien's because he gives sort of credence to this in his own letters where he talks about the references to the distant past and the Lord of the Rings as part of its appeal, he says in one letter. And he compares it to something like seeing an island glittering on the distance. And if we sail directly to it, we will ruin the magic. We will spoil the enchantment. We have to be careful about that. So I think that would be the last thing that I kind of established for readers in that uh, very substantial, yes, introduction. Yeah. The bit that I particularly liked was the section where you spoke about finding truth outside of Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually one of, I think, Lewis's most winsome points in mere Christianity. He says that to accept Christianity means that you actually don't have to say that all other religions are entirely wrong. Right. In fact, one of the one of the arguments for Christianity is that it has explanatory power. It can explain the truth that you find elsewhere. Mm. Uh, Lewis speaks about God sending the pagans good dreams, which was mm. basically the myths that they that they would that they were told that they would tell. Mm. And this was a similar idea that I was actually first introduced by the early church fathers when they spoke about despoiling the Egyptians. That mm. anything that is true comes from the Logos. Christ is the Logos. Therefore, anything true that is found in non-Christian religions is rightfully the property of us Christians. You know, and, they, and they quite gleefully went and took anything that they saw as having truth, goodness, and beauty. They baptized right. it and then brought it into the faith and then put it to the service of the faith. That's right. And I, I agree. And I think for the reader or listener here that might be concerned about the assertiveness and exclusivity of that statement, you know, that it belongs to us, 
that it when Christian says that we're not saying it belongs to we Christians, but to to God. It belongs to God. All, all types in reality point to God. Some participate and point point to and participate in God more than others, but they all belong to Him. And 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 as for the exclusivity, every every culture, uh, every narrative, every religion, however you want to put it, has exclusive. Uh, terms and, and that that's not something we can avoid. So it's 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 a myth in the modern sense of that, the way we understand myth as a false narrative that that we can somehow avoid exclusivity. So I address that too because we think we're being tolerant by saying that well everybody can have their cake and eat it or everybody can have their own true religion true for them. And well no that's not how truth works. And well what do you mean that's not how truth works? Well let's think about it and I walk you through that. Uh, at least I, I try my best to. And of course, standing on the, the shoulders of Tolkien and Lewis there, who did this in a, in a wonderfully a winsome way, as you said, Lewis, um, according to one Lewis scholar, Charlie W. Starr, he said that Lewis said he would not have become a Christian had it meant rejecting the truth, goodness and beauty that he found as an atheist uh, in other religions. He just never would have made the transition, thanks to uh, Hugo Dyson and, and Tolkien that September evening in 1931. Mm. And one of the things I've heard you say is that if somebody says that might be true for you, it's really just another way of saying that's not true. <laughs> Ex yes, that's exactly right. I mean, you're, if it's all subjective, then it's, uh, you know, it's like using little, little bean counters. I mean, you know, uh, little, little checkers, you know, that they don't mean anything. We're just exchanging. I think I'm drawing on Lewis in the meditation in a tool shed who says something like that. You know, that's it. It's just about feelings and not facts. So it's another way of saying it's not true. Hmm. Yeah. Now, after the introduction, your book is broken up into five parts, and the first is called The Lord of the Rings as Parable. Yeah. And you break down a bunch of terms related to allegory. And I was originally going to ask you what they were, but I'm actually going to make a, an attempt to try and tell you what I think you're saying, and you can tell me where I go wrong. Yeah, sure. You basically argue that allegory is, an, uh, is, is a big umbrella. Because we've got a kind of complicated situation whereby Tolkien said that he didn't like allegory, and in other places he then says that Lord of the Rings is an allegory. Mm. So allegory is a very broad term to denote any kind of writing where one thing is pointing to in some respect to something else. And that appears on a spectrum, on a continuum. And mm -hmm. so at one end, you've got the very clear, very intentional allegory where it's a one-to-one a -one relationship. And it's also kind of obvious. I'm thinking of something like, say, the Pilgrim's Progress. Mm. If somebody is called despair, well, then they're about despair. You know, it's no nothing too clever. No. But then at the other end, you've got fairy tales and parables, which are much more suggestive. And, and the comparison that I also liked, you compared raw allegory to metaphor. Uh, allegory is, again, pointing in this sense, like a one-to-one -one relationship, whereas metaphor is much more suggestive. Mm -hmm. uh, what Lewis would refer to in his works is the kappa element in particular, when he's talking about yes. a, an environment, a certain feeling. Yes. yes. And, and we mentioned Dr. Ward's work, Planet Narnia, earlier. Mm. This is the entire point of Planet Narnia, that Lewis, through his very careful use of language and image, is trying to evoke the atmosphere, the feelings of the spiritual symbols of... The cosmology, you know, of the medieval cosmos. Mm -hmm. How did I do? You did fantastic. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I'll just kind of add on a few things, but that I wouldn't change a thing about how you said it. And you know, I had read Doctor Ward's book prior to writing my book. At some point in the years, I was you know neck deep in books, but I don't think it made it its way into my bibliography because I didn't have time to look into some of the uh, the references, especially in early chapters of that book that I, I knew were helpful. And so it's been fun revisiting that book and seeing how many points of contact there are between the research that he's done and drawing on that Kappa element and romance that you mentioned, which later I think was dubbed uh, a new title for that new, another, uh, it had a new name later on, mm -hmm. that essay was renamed. Uh, and I, I've been reading it and I'm liking, this is, this is great. Lewis and Tolkien had their, they had their mindset on this. They wanted they wanted to make it Christian. They wanted you to have breathing Christian air, but without thinking that you were. So yeah, I think, uh, what can I add here? So I would say that, uh, yes, you know, of course, when you say that the Lord of the Rings is an allegory, as I do, and that there's nothing to fear from this, most people who are just even cursory, uh, you know, familiarity with the term or with Tolkien studies, they'll say, oh, oh my God. 
Well, when you actually look at uh, the letters of Tolkien, I think it's letter, I want to say 187. I have to double check here. I have it somewhere. But one of the 180s, he says, you know, my work is not an allegory of atomic power, but of power exerted for domination, something to that extent. And it was pointed out by a couple of Tolkien scholars, actually, that I read, uh, one of which was Joseph Pierce, who, you know, said, hey, look, he's it is an allegory. It's just not the kind that he disliked. So I'm not the first to point this out, but I think I'm the first to sort of say um, there's a spectrum, maybe not the first to say that so much, but that there are subtle interactions between, as we'll get to, the difference between metaphorical language and allegorical language. This is where it gets a little bit more nuanced that I can add to this in a moment. But yes, I think we have on one end of this uh, spectrum, we can hypothesize the conscious and intentional, the crude allegory goes by many names where I would say the entire composition is dominated by the allegorical mode, which is actually more akin to direct language, more like logos and less like mythos. It's it's very transparent to the reality that it wants to portray. You know you're reading a Christian story. Mm-hmm. There's just no way around it. <laughs> On the other end, you have the fairy story uh, or the parable. Now, why am I making that connection? Well, because one of Tolkien's good friends and confidants made it first. He said that, uh, we can find in many uh, many examples in the uh, fairy story of Tolkien, the art of the parable, Murray said. And so we can find many examples of the art of the parable. And he goes on to explain what some of those are uh, and compares them to the parables of Jesus. And I said, well, well, let's explore what biblical scholars say about the form of the parable and the uh, the fairy story. And I found that those two kind of belong at the other end of the spectrum. And the way I break it down in my book is that if, you know, Tolkien says the Lord of the Rings is an allegory or a kind of allegory, he also says that the Lord of the Rings is a fairy story. That means that a fairy story could be rightly classified as a type of allegory opposite the conscious one that he didn't like. Now, I'll, I'll quote Jane Chance, I think, who who says that, you know, Tolkien's thought was very complex. Uh, this is a Tolkien scholar, Jane Chance. She wrote a, a book about Tolkien some years ago. Uh, As he often did in person, she says, Tolkien is trying to say several things at the same time, (laughs) often appearing to contradict himself. Professor Clyde Kilby had once labeled this as Tolkien's proclivity for contrasistency, this insistent or consistent ability for him to contradict himself. (laughs) And that is so true when it comes to allegory. Um, It's it's an incredibly uh, nuanced term. So yeah, that's uh, I think good, David. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll point out one thing I'd add here is the difference between the allegorical mode and the metaphorical mode. Although you already kind of hinted at it, the metaphorical mode is more suggestive, as you said. The allegorical is more, uh, I'm sorry, less suggestive, more direct. It, it reminds you of what you already know. The metaphorical mode uh, is more implicit. It, it suggests a connection, but it doesn't exactly spell it out. Uh, and so typically most people think of metaphor as substitutionary speech. It's an expendable substitute for literal language. That, that's not my understanding of metaphor or, or many biblical scholars for that matter. Metaphor uh, is um, kind of suggesting an inner animation between two thoughts, uh, a suggestive implicit connection, not an exact one for one, which is the kind that Tolkien really wanted to avoid. So I think there there needs to be a, a more uh, nuanced understanding of metaphor for, for readers who are probably going to collapse a lot of these terms together. I, I don't think that people are aware of how much hair splitting scholars have done over <laughs> these terms, which is really what we're doing, isn't it? So that's, that's one other thing I could say, and uh, I'll stop there for now. Well, I now want to apply some of this to Narnia. Because yes. this is what I was thinking about while I was, <laughs> I was thinking of another book <laughs> while I was reading mm-hmm. yours. Uh, of course. Because I actually thought this provided some really good language to talk about Narnia and to explain some people's reactions to it. Mm. Because I would argue that Lewis's supposal, he said that Narnia wasn't an allegory, quote unquote, uh, but mm. that it was a supposal. It's what if the second person of the Trinity, what if he made a world and came to redeem it and that was a world of talking animals, what would that be like? And the way I thought about a supposal is it is it has at least one very clear allegorical element. Here, that's Aslan. Aslan is the sun. He is Jesus. But the, everything else that's around that is largely metaphorical. Mm-hmm. So although he uses a very strong allegorical element, the work as a whole 
doesn't necessarily therefore fall into the genre of allegory. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And then, I, agreed. and then I would double down to then talk about The Magician's Nephew and The Last mm-hmm. Battle because they have a very similar kind of element. It's got a very key allegorical signal. The Magician's Nephew, everybody talks about it as Narnia's creation story. And that immediately takes you to Genesis. That is a very short, <laughs> that's a very short trip that you make between those those two books. And likewise mm. with the Last Battle, that is Narnia's Apocalypse. It's the Book of Revelation. And so once again, you have a very strong allegorical element uh, that tool is used, but that the stories themselves are suffused with metaphor and lots of other things that are suggestive that aren't just a straight, simple one-to-one relationship. Even say in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Although it's a parallel to Jesus' crucifixion, sure. uh, detail after detail, eh, no, it's different. It's not quite the same. No, that's not. Uh, and so this is my explanation as to why a lot of people call Narnia allegory. And I think it's it's not true not in the genre sense that they're thinking. No, I, I quite agree. And, and, and Lewis was very emphatic that it isn't. And I think both Tolkien and Lewis in various places, and I can't track down in my mind exactly where, I think it was in the introduction to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Sir Ofeo and Pearl that Tolkien did, uh, where he talks about the fact that you can find allegorical the allegorical mode in a composition doesn't make it the entire composition an allegory. Allegorical language, or even using allegorical language to interpret a story, so whether in making or interpreting a story, is not of, I mean, it's it's inevitable. He, Tolkien says in a letter, you you can't interpret a metaphor without metaphorical language itself. So uh, that's that's something actually that he says, as I said in a letter, it's un, it's unavoidable. So I think uh, this is an excellent way to apply this to Narnia. And I would say that another way uh, that we might put this, you know, is in typical understanding, as I said, of metaphor is this substitution theory that assumes that metaphor is just another way of saying what can be said literally. Well, if you're trying to tell a story that everybody already knows, like the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you want to use um, that kind of metaphor. That's the traditional understanding of metaphor, which is actually more what allegorical means in in my understanding that my research has yielded. And if you want to tell a story like that, um, and some have leveled that Lewis has, I don't think that's entirely correct, then that's what you do. But if you want to... Uh, do more than just give a fresh spin, as one scholar has put it, on worn-out literal language. This is uh, one author I drew on uh, who wrote a book about George MacDonald's writings, uh, and she said this, you know, then you want to use that understanding of metaphor as suggestive speech. If you want to show something new in the supposal, you know, imagine that Jesus were a lion in this world called Narnia. Just pretend for a second, right? Imagine that. Um, this understanding of metaphor allows us to open up new understandings and insights about who Jesus is by seeing him as a lion. And so with that, I want to say it's a new understanding of metaphor, but I think biblical scholars have been working with this for some time. It's new for me. Uh, With that understanding of metaphor, it's not just a substitution for what can be said literal. The metaphor is the message. Mm. And that's very key to understanding both my book and I think, you know, books about Narnia uh, and, and the Narnia books themselves. And I want to talk about the rest of the book, but one yeah. thing I do want to say first, as you were as you were describing that, I was also put in mind of Andrew's favorite book, Till We Have Faces. Mm. Oh yes. And that book, I would say, is all suggestion. Mm. There is the Christian story in there somewhere, and Christians read that book and they can tell it's in there, but they can't quite put their finger on the elements very clearly. There's right. there's something the idea of a sacrifice. There's an idea of the God of love. Uh, there's mm. the idea of the soul and beauty, but it seems like a familiar story, but it's different and weird. Exactly. And it keeps evoking stuff in you, but you're not quite sure why or where it's going. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what I'm suggesting about Tolkien's books as well. Now, in the second section of your book, you claim that parables are good news stories. Mm-hmm. Why are they? So we think about parables as good news stories. Okay, well, we have to ask, what is the good news? And when we look at uh, what the Bible says, what Jesus himself says in Mark one fifteen, he identifies the gospel as good news. That is literally what God's spell means, of course, in Old English. Good, good story, good tidings, good news. When we ask as Christians, what is, what is this good news? Is it that Jesus is divine? 
Well, I, you know, the English scholar N.T. Wright uh, was very formative to my understanding of all this. And the way I read his books, it kind of opened up this new way of understanding scripture. And he points out that we're asking the wrong question and looking for the wrong thing when we're looking to identify what this good news is. Uh, the Gospels treat this idea of Jesus' divinity as presupposition. That's not the real point. That's not what the incarnation really means. What does that look like? He says it looks like God becoming king. He also, if you've read any of Wright's books, you know he talks like many New Testament scholars about the already and the not yet. So I would say that by being, when we look at the parables of Jesus, by seeing that C.H. Dodd's famous, you know, already, he's one scholar who spoke of the already and not yet, um, you know, quite a bit. When we see that already but not yet element, that present and future tension in Christianity in Jesus's own parables, then we, we now have this measuring stick to, to what constitutes a Christian story. And you can clearly find uh, those in Jesus's parables. And I argue you can find them in uh, all over all of Tolkien's books, but especially the Lord of the Rings is uh, filled with these elements of already and not yet. And I would also argue that that's tied to, as I said initially, the idea of God becoming king, that that's what the incarnation means. That's what it really looks like. That's what we need to wrap our mind around, that God is here. He's setting, thing to rights, uh, setting things to rights. He's, he's uh, making all things new. Uh, and so I explore what that means in chapter two, what it means to understand that already and not yet element of Christianity and how it's connected to the good news and then uh, how we can see it in the Bible and how we can see it in Tolkien's books. And I'll give you an example towards the end of the return of the king. Uh, you know, the one volume edition that I have on Kindles, page 963, it's the steward and the king chapter for those you nerds out there like me who know exactly what I'm referring to. You think of uh, the eagle singing um, over Minas Tirith. He's coming back and he says, Sing now, you people of the Tower of Anor, for the realm of Sauron is ended forever and the dark tower is thrown down. Sing and rejoice, you people of the Tower of the Guard, for your watch has not, hath not been in vain and the black gate is broken and your king hath passed through and he is victorious. And this is the best part. Sing and be glad, all you children of the West, for your king shall come again and he shall dwell among you all the days of your life. And the tree that was withered shall be renewed. He shall plant it in the high places, and the city shall be blessed. Sing all you people. And the people sang in all the ways of the city, we're told. This is this is the heart of the good news. And it's also when we find out you know, more about what Aragorn is doing in that uh, chapter. He finds the sapling with Gandalf. He gets married. He's coronated. We, uh, we see all these... You know, the kingdom is established, but it's still a sad world. It's still a broken world. It's not yet fully consummated. And I could spend the rest of our time just talking about these good news slash already not yet elements. Uh, but why is it good news? I would say one final word. I would say that it's good news because it. many people think of Christianity as a you know disembodied faith about preaching about a whole new world that we're going to go to, that we're going to get rid of this one. And that's not what the gospel is about. It's good news because the, the real understanding of the Christian story tells us that there is suffering, there is sorrow, that joy in this life is partial, not yet full. And I think that that will surprise people and it will be good news, but that things are going to be made right again. I know and Sam says, are all sad things going to come untrue? And the answer is yes. Uh, and that is that is what I mean in chapter two. So we explore that mm -hmm. in that chapter. Well, in chapter one, you said that the Lord of the Rings is a parable. And in chapter two, you said that parables are good news stories. And so mm -hmm. in the third section of your book, you complete the syllogism. You say yeah. that the Lord of the Rings is good news. Uh, and now you, you laid out some of it there. What else sure. would, you, would you unpack from that? Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it in that Aristotelian sense when I was writing it, but I was thinking clearly there's some logic to this. And I, I love I love that you you put it that way because that's what I think I was going for instinctively. Instinctively, <laughs> So uh, it's it's great. It's great to be understood, uh, you know, that somebody picks up on that. So thank you. Um, you know, I would say what else is there left to say that, um, you know, just emphasizing that the Lord of the Rings – is good news that there are elements in that novel that point to this already but not yet element uh, that pervades the gospels and that pervades the entire bible that this um uh, we this this template that we have established already in the previous chapter can be seen uh poking its way through the narrative uh if you have eyes to see and tolkien even says this in a letter 
to his friend, Father Robert Murray, that I've, I've mentioned several times, he says he's kept allusions to the highest matters down to mere hints. That's the way of the parable. So if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you'll see that. You'll, you'll see, you know, like Paul's 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you know, Christ has to keep on reigning until all enemies are put under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated is death. You'll see that element in the appendices even of the Lord of the Rings. You'll see it everywhere. And in, uh, you know, in several interviews I've been doing over the last half year, I, I've, I've been asked this question. Uh, there's just so many examples I would give. But in chapter three, that's what I'm doing. I will say for those of you that are listening and maybe haven't heard of my book for the first time, I, I'm not giving a comprehensive treatment of all the characters and events of the whole mythology. I, I really focus on the monarchical figure of Aragorn. And so I really spent a lot of time unpacking that. How can we see that exodus, reditus, you know, the exile and returning king? And how does that say the good news? And what does that have to do with this way of understanding the good news as the already and not yet story? And so I really just am kind of picking up the insights from the previous chapters and tying it up in a, in a bow and, or tying it up in a, in a present and putting a bow on it in chapter three. That's, that's what we're doing. And in both chapters three and four, you take a tour of Tolkien's complete corpus. That's uh, right. The New Shadow, the Silmarillion, the Hobbit, mm -hmm. uh, and you also chase the story of Thorin, mm. always looking at these kingly elements. Yes. And I actually think you could have very easily produced a trilogy of books <laughs> looking at the yeah. kingly, the priestly, and the prophetic of course. imagery throughout all of them. But your fifth and final section is simply Estelle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I like this title because it weeds out the casual Tolkien fans from the diehards. That's right. Separating the elves from the orcs, so to speak. <laughs> so, uh, so why did you name that final part of your book after Aragorn II, son of Arathorn II, 16th chieftain of the Dúnedain of the North, later crowned king, Alessar? Uh, the 26th king of Arnor, the 35th king of Gondor, and the first high king of Gondor and Arnor since the reign of Isildur. To give his proper name, of course. I'm proving. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm demonstrating my nerd credentials. I just want people That's to right. know what a lucky woman Marie is for f managing to find me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not alone in that. Yes, so... <laughs> Uh, it's it's a wonderful um, final chapter, um, you know. And just a quick word about chapter four. I, I spend time talking about the way Thorin prefigures tip, typologically uh, the character of Aragorn uh, in, um, you know, of course, the Lord of the Rings. And so I spend time connecting the dots there. Uh, and it's and it's very important that we we see that Tolkien, I think, had this vision as well because in the Quest of Erebor, which is an unfinished tale, he has Gimli. Uh, scratching his chin, kind of thinking about how all of this, in his words, is strangely, wo strangely woven together. Strangely woven together. Very strangely indeed, he says. <laughs> that how all the events have kind of, you know, woven together to produce this ability for Aragorn to return as king. And so I go back to the very beginnings of Middle-earth in this chapter to talk about uh, the messianic uh, hope for the incarnation in middle earth. And it is um, Christopher Tolkien himself who said that he thinks that this was his father's most, you know, theological works. It's um, Dr. Bradley J. Berzer has said in his book on Tolkien that this is a uh, mythical presentation of the incarnation in the debate of Finrod and Andrath. And so I, I spent a lot of time talking about the Silmarillion and the debate of Finrod and Andrath. Uh, for those of you that don't know, it's a conversation that takes place in the first age between Galadriel's brother, Finrod, and Andreth, who's uh, like a, a woman of, of the race of men. She's um, kind of like a, a seer, I think, of a wise woman who actually also has affections for Finrod and uh, that are unrequited. But anyway, they, they have a conversation. It's very Job-like that uh, among many other topics, just FYI, uh, they talk about Estelle which is, of course, the name that uh, Aragorn's mother, Gilrean, gives uh, to her son. Uh, it's the code name for Aragorn, right? It means hope. And uh, we find out that when we go back to the debate of Finrod and Andreth, Tolkien had written this late 1950s uh, dialogue uh, that produces this hope. It was already the old hope in the first age, which says a lot, meaning it even goes back to the beginning of time, that one day Iluvatar, God, will enter the creation as a a uh, painter does his picture as an author does his story. And I kind of connect that with parable 
I know it's really interesting. I want to give your listeners this fun fact. In my research of the Semitic uh, linguistic origins of uh, the word mashal, which is Hebrew for proverb, parable, riddle, this is the word that when we translate out of the Hebrew into the Greek, uh, parabolain or parabole, right, where we get the word parable, the Hebrew equivalent is mashal. Well, mashal has a history going back to meaning something like uh, reign, a king's reign. Uh, the rule of God or the rule of his son, the king on earth. And it's a very peculiar thing, but it was astounding to learn that. And so I tie all that together in chapter five, and I show that there is a hope for the incarnation that we can understand, despite Tolkien's words in his letters, that we we have to understand the incarnation a certain way or not look for it in Middle Earth. I present a good case that we can, and that we might have misunderstood what he meant by that, and that... Um, the incarnation is understood how God became king and that we can see it reflected parabolically in Middle Earth is really what it amounts to saying. And uh, yeah, that's the final chapter of the book. And I try to tie together all the arguments that I've put forward. And so, you know, we've obviously leapfrogged over quite a bit. I hope people will, will read it and see it for themselves. And there's a lot left that I haven't connected. So, But I think you have backed up something that Father Dwight Longenecker said on an earlier episode, that for Lent, oh. more people should read The Lord of the Rings. That should mm. be their spiritual reading. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. I think so. It is uh, a deeply Catholic and a deeply more broadly Christian book. Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about your book. Where can people go to find out more about you, listen to the podcast, and pick up a copy of the book? Sure. Yeah, I have a YouTube channel uh, for Mythic Mission, uh, Anchor, iTunes. You can find me on every uh, you know famous podcast station that you like to listen to. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, all social media, Instagram. I also have a blog on WordPress. I know you'll be releasing some of those details with the show. So I'm all over the place. I'm easy to find these days. And you fortunately have a very unique last name, which makes you easy yes, to I find. Do. Yes, indeed. <laughs> which and, is how uh, I could tell your teacher's rating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and my book is also available on Amazon, uh, so it's easy to pick up there. Wonderful. Thank mm. you. And thanks to all of our top-tier supporters, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. If you gave up alcohol for Lent, why not make your first dram of scotch extra tasty by picking up a laser-etched Pints with Jack glass at our store? You can find it on our website, pintswithjack.com, uh, which, by the way, is going to be getting a facelift in a month or two. It's my current project. And please share everything on social media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, MySpace. That's right, we're still bringing it back. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.